Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. Let's go home and log on to our website and listen to the message from last week. I began talking to you about foul truth, and I told you several things about fouls. Fouls are a part of the game of basketball, and they're also a part of the game of life. I told you last week that uh, there's no doubt about it. You will foul somebody, as perfect as you are, and somebody will foul you. It's just a, that's just a part of life. And then the second thing I told you was that how you respond to the fouls is what's important. And I told you there were four things you could do when, when you get fouled. One, you can de deny it and act like it never happened. And we talked about what happens when you do that. You end up going postal on somebody eventually because it all builds up. The second thing you could do is you could uh, get mad and try to get even. I happened to be uh, looking on MSNBC and saw the report about the gunman that killed 11 people in Alabama this, this past week. Y'all saw that? You know what the headline was? Gunman kept a list of everybody that hurt him and tried to get revenge. He'd been fouled. He'd been hurt. And he tried to get even. We can't live our lives like that. The third thing I said you could do is you could get fouled and you could quit. And that's not a good response either, either because how many of you know that Christianity is a team sport? That's why in Hebrews it said, don't forsake the gathering together of ourselves. We need one another. You can't win at home. Y'all are quiet this morning. Come on, wake up. You cannot win this game by yourself. I don't care what kind of superstar you are. We need one another. So you can't get fouled and quit. And then the fourth thing I said was what we want you to get to, we want you to grow up and mature as a Christian to the point that you can get fouled and finish the play. Even when you get knocked off course, even when you get knocked off balance, you can still get fouled but finish the play. And so I hope you've done that. I did. The, the next truth I told you was that... that um, you can foul out. How many of you know if somebody keeps hurting you over and over and over and over again, there comes a moment where they foul out, right? And I told you that a lot of times what we need to do is we need to mark people. Paul says that if you run into somebody that is constantly creating division and strife, you should mark them and avoid them. And so I know some of you went to Walmart and bought all the face paint you could find, and you've been marking everything that moves this week, right? Well, I hope not, because maybe later this year, if the Lord allow me, what I want to do is go back and look at that and talk about the, speci the specifications of who you're supposed to mark, what, what denotes that somebody should be marked. But, but you realize that you can foul out and be disqualified because you've fouled so much. And then the fourth thing I told you is that at some moment in your Christian walk, you are more than likely going to need a referee. Somebody's going to hurt you or you're going to hurt somebody. And the Bible's very clear. I told you it's one of the most underused truths in Scripture. And that is, is that we're, when we hurt somebody or somebody hurts us, we're supposed to go one-on-one. -on -one, and a lot of times we have to take somebody with us, right? So you're going to need a referee. So we're going to take one more step this morning and talk a little bit more about basketball. I posed a question to you the last week that I hope you've been chewing on. Um, I think I referenced this in Ephesians chapter 5. It's actually 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it said that Paul says that we make a decision that we will not regard somebody after the flesh but after the spirit. How many of you know this morning that some of you right now, if you were regarding me after the flesh, wouldn't like me very much? And that's all right because if I regard you after the flesh, I might not like you either. But we're not supposed to regard one another after the flesh. We're supposed to regard one another after the spirit. Therefore, I ask you this question. What are you going to do? If your destiny is wrapped up in somebody that hurts you, and I hope you've been choosing, chewing on that all week long, making a decision about what you're going to do. 
Well, there's some more things about basketball that speak to us in our Christian walk, and I want us to do, deal with that. Um, this morning, I have a really glamorous topic to talk to you about. It's a really sexy topic to talk about that everybody's going to set up on the edge of your seats and just be so excited about. I want to talk to you about, are you ready? Get the drum, drum roll. Are you ready? I want to talk to you about fundamentals. Well, that's really glamorous, isn't it? We don't like to talk about the fundamentals. We don't like to talk about the day-to-day, day-in, day-out stuff because most of us don't have a high regard for fundamentals. We kind of feel like that fundamentals are kind of like, well, watch this. Practice. If, if, if a coach say I miss practice and y'all hear it, then that's that. I mean, I might have missed one practice this year, but if if somebody say he doesn't come to practice, it can be one practice out of all the practices this year. That's enough. If I can't practice, I can't practice, man. I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I mean, simple as that. It ain't about that. It's, it's not about that at all. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but it's it's it's, it's easy to, to to talk about. It's easy to sum it up when you just talk about practice. We sitting here. I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice, not a game. Not a, not not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? I mean, we're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that. And I'm not I'm not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We're talking about practice, man. We're we're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. When you come into the arena and you see me play, you see me play, don't you? You see me give everything I got, right? But we're talking about practice right now. We're talking about practice. Man, look, I hear you. It's funny to me, too. I mean, it's strange, it's strange to me, too. But we're talking about practice, man. We're not even talking about the game, the actual game, when it matters. We're talking about practice. That's how we feel about the fundamentals. It's just practice. We're good when the lights come on on Sundays. Boy, it already got quiet, didn't it? But we're talking about practice. Fundamentals, practice, man. Come on, this is just practice. See, any coach worth his or her salt will tell you this, that practice, the lack of practice, not taking care of practice, y'all, y'all catching on, 
may not show up in the short term, but ultimately at some moment in your, in your game, in the experience, you will be exposed for lack of practice. In fact, I, I discovered this. There's this, uh, some research done by this guy named Erickson, and he said that elite performers in many diverse domains have fit, been found to practice on the average roughly the same amount every day, including weekends. So why is it that Christians, we only take care of practice on the weekends and don't take care of it the rest of the week? Practice. The fundamentals of the game. Listen, it doesn't matter how professional you become, how many skills you may have. I know you got mad skills, but, but the reality is, is it really doesn't matter about all that. If you don't take care of the fundamentals, the fundamentals will come back and haunt you. So it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for three days or for three decades. The reality is for all of us that we have to take care of the fundamentals in our walk or we will not be able to perform at the level that God wants us to perform. So we have to stay proficient. So let's talk about basketball. One of the most fundamental things that you learn about basketball, I didn't learn this for a long time because I didn't have any real uh, official coaching until I got into college, but my, my sons are starting to play now, and one of the very first things that they learn in basketball is a fundamental skill called the triple threat. And if you don't know what the triple threat is, I'm going to explain it to you because it is one of the, it is, if not the most, one of the most basic fundamental elements of basketball. And if you don't know how to be in the triple threat, you cannot play basketball effectively. So let me illustrate. Tal, come on. All right, Tal's been taking, playing basketball, and he's going to get in the triple threat position. The reason that it's triple threat position is because out of this position, he can do three things. The first of all, if he receives the pass, out of the triple threat position, he can pass back. That's one. He can pass hard and high when a guy's holding the microphone. I don't know. The second reason that it's called the triple threat is this. He receives the pass, and now he can shoot without changing position. The third thing that he can do is out of this position, he receives the pass. Show me your handling skills. He can now go into a dribble without moving. And so it is called the triple threat. So thank you very much. So those three elements make you a... a yeah, go ahead. Give him a hand. He's got skills. All right. Those three things, you have to master all three of those things because without a mastery of all three elements, you are deficient in your game. Therefore, if you can't shoot and all you can do is pass, then what I'm going to do is when I'm playing defense against you, I'm going to let you go all the way to the rim and I'm going to step out of the way because I know as soon as you get to the rim, what you're going to do is turn and pass the ball. That's all you know how to do is pass. You can't shoot. I don't have to guard you. You're not a threat to me. If all you can do is shoot, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my very best defensive player on you. If you can't pass and you won't pass and you can't dribble, then all you're going to do is stand there outside the three-point line waiting on the ball, and all I'm going to do is put my very best defender up in your face so that you never get the ball. Or if all you can do is dribble, you're really in trouble because you're no threat at all. So in order to be a formidable opponent, opponent, you must have all three elements, passing, shooting, and dribbling. And what I want to say to you this morning is that there are three elements in our Christian walk that if we don't have these three elements, we are deficient and we are no threat. Now, when we start talking about the fundamentals or the basics, the practice, we normally, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go into 
uh, Matthew because in Matthew, Jesus preaches one of the most famous messages ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've looked at this passage probably most of you all of your life because what it does is it describes for us kingdom principles that we're now supposed to live our life by that now that we're in the kingdom. But I want us to look at it a little bit differently this morning because in this passage of Scripture, Jesus reveals three basic fundamentals, the triple threat of a Christian walk that would make us hard to handle in life. Let's, let's look. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 1 through 8, and then verses 16 through 18. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Notice, if you will, that in this passage of Scripture that I just read to you, Jesus deals with three when areas of our life. Jesus is making a huge assumption about his followers that as followers of Christ, there will be three wins that take place in our life. These three wins will make up the fundamentals of our life and our walk and will cause us to be difficult to handle there. In fact, Jesus kind of approaches it like this. If you do these three things or when you do these three things, don't think you're so spiritual that you glow in the dark. Don't think you're some spiritual giant that's above and beyond everybody else that you know spiritually. No, no. These are the basics. These three things I'm expecting, I'm making a huge assumption here, Jesus is saying, that you are going to be involved in these three areas. These three things are basic. And he says, when you do these th three things, and he reveals the triple threat of Christianity. You know what it is. It's when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. Now, my question or my concern is this morning is that most of us are not living on wins. We're living on ifs. If I pray. If I give, if I fast, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 you, you've missed the whole point. I'm expecting you, if you're going to be one of mine, and I'm going to be your Lord and Savior, and you're going to live for me, then this is not an if factor, this is a when factor. I'm expecting you to do these three things. It's quiet in this church this morning. Are y'all awake with me this morning? Do you understand that Jesus was not giving us any negotiating room here? Well, I, would, I think I might pray or I might give or I might fast. No, no. He's saying when you do. It's a foregone conclusion. 
And so many of us are trying to live our lives on, on this concept of if I do these three things. I understand that the triple threat is not glamorous. And I understand that nobody sits on the edge of their seat to learn about fasting and praying and giving. But I also understand that if we don't master these three elements, we are of no threat to the enemy at all. And so Jesus deals with these three issues. I want to mention some things out of these, these things. These things are essential for victory. Jesus says the first element of the triple threat is giving. Have you ever heard the old saying or used the old saying? I used it this past week. I was talking to somebody. They were telling me how they've been blessed because they were tithing. And I used this. I know y'all have used this. I've used it. I said, well, you know, you can't outgive God. How many of you have ever heard that or said that, right? All of us. Here's my question. $64 million question right here. When was the last time you tried? Well, I'm paying my tithes. Yeah, but were you trying to outgive God? That's the, that's the bottom line. That's, that's what we're supposed to give. Are we really ever attempting to outgive God? Because what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to be a follower of mine, then your life is going to be so marked by generosity that I must give you instructions on how to give because I already know if I don't give you instructions how to give, you'll give everything away. In fact, the instructions that Jesus gives about giving are important, but I think maybe even more important is the concept that he expects us to be generous. Reminds me about all the people I hear testify about uh, that work. I used to work in restaurants, and you know what I discovered? You don't want to wait on Christians because they don't tip. I mean, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather, much rather wait on a drunk. Then wait on somebody's drunk in the Holy Ghost. Because what I already know before we ever serve the first piece of food is that the person that's drunk on wine will give twice as much tip normally as the person drunk on the Holy Ghost. And Jesus is saying that we should be so marked by the spirit of generosity that he's got to now give us instructions on how to give. I'm preaching real good right now. We're supposed to be marked by generosity. That's one of the elements of the triple threat. Jesus goes on and, and he says, give. When you give, Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. Listen carefully. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what that means in the original language? A hilarious giver. In other words, you give so much that people look at you like you're nuts. That you give so much that you crack yourself up. When's the last time you gave so much that you sat there and laughed at yourself? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. I love that kind of giver. That's what I like. And then he goes on and he says this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now listen to this. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Listen to this. This is a promise. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. That's a promise from the Word of God. 
that he would make us rich so that on every occasion, not when they just have pictures of naked starving babies on the screen, then we're generous. No, no. He's saying as you live your life on a daily basis, I will so mark you with generosity that on every occasion when you somebody that's hurting, somebody that's in need, you will step in and be generous. And he says, and through your generosity, it will result in thanksgiving to God. You will be made rich so that you can live in a nice house so that you can drive a fancy car, so that you can have the best clothes and eat at the best restaurants, right? No. He says, I will make you rich so that you can be generous. Jesus' instruction are, are very simple and straightforward. He says this, give, but don't make a show of giving. We're not supposed to be giving to get our name on a plaque. We're not supposed to be giving to get attention or notoriety or, or you know, become famous. We don't just give when people are watching. We're supposed to be so generous on every occasion that we give when nobody sees. You know what that means? We may actually give and never be told thank you. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Until you stop and understand that Jesus said what you've done in secret my Father will reward openly. And so therefore, I have come to the conclusion that I would rather God say thank you than some of you say thank you. I am supposed to be so marked by generosity that I am willing to give. And I just want to ask you, are you a threat to be generous? To be generous, we have to have a right attitude. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 through 25 says, One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Have you ever met somebody that gave everything away and God keeps giving it back to them? And it makes you mad. Why do they keep getting stuff and giving it all away? And God, he's just honoring his word. I like what it says in the Message Bible. It says the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. So when, were the, when was the last time that you were dangerously generous? When was the last time you tried to give out, give God? See, I, what I've come to con this conclusion is this. We like to be obedient until it hits our wallet. I didn't expect to get very many amens there, but it's the truth. That reveals our heart. Jesus says, be generous. I'm asking God to mark us as a generous people. The second element of the triple threat is praying. Again, Jesus makes an assumption. He assumes that his people will be marked by the dis discipline of prayer. In fact, he makes the assumption that not only will we pray, but that we should constantly pray and that we should consistently pray and that we would be people who are regularly in prayer. That's the assumption Jesus makes. And he teaches us some principles about this uh, thing called prayer, this element of the triple threat. Here's what he teaches us. Number one, he teaches us that your private prayer is more, more important than your public prayer. If we're not careful, the only time we ever pray is in public. You know what Jesus calls people like that? The dreaded H word, hypocrites. 
If the only time we ever pray is when we're at church, if the only time we ever pray is at the prayer meeting, if the only time we pray is over our meal out at the restaurant so everybody will know that we're Christians, then we are nothing more than hypocrites. Jesus is saying that what he is looking for is a group of people who in the privacy of their own car, in the privacy of their own bedroom, while they're washing dishes, while they're washing their car, while they're in their office, while they're playing softball, while they're doing any element of their life, I want you to be involved in prayer. That's the showstopper for Jesus. Jesus is not awed by our public prayers. Jesus understands that, that the more important element is the fact that we begin to pray in private. In fact, have you ever been around those people and, or listened to those people? You come to a church service or some event and somebody stands up and they pray, pray and it's so eloquent. It's almost like poetry. And we go, oh, man, I wish I could pray like, like that. Jesus is not impressed. What he really wants to know is are we praying in private? In fact, let me just put it like this. The truth is that the power of our public prayer life is found in the power of our private prayer life. If you're not playing, praying in private, you won't have any power to pray in public. The second thing he tells us is that the number of the words that we use does not matter. The number of words is not what matters. Prayer is supposed to be a dialogue. You understand that the, the D-I there, the die, means two. It's a two-way street. Prayer is supposed to be me talking and me listening. Have you ever sat next to somebody and they prayed so much in so many words that you stop and you begin to think, you know what, I don't even know if God can get a word in edgewise. Y'all never sat, man, man, I've sat next to people that they prayed so many words, I just want to lean over and say, shut up. Okay, y'all be all holy if you want to be, but I sat, some, I sat by some folks, I don't even know if God could put up with it. We're trying to out-talk God. Listen, prayer is supposed to be, Jesus says, don't worry about the number of words you're using. In other words, stop and listen sometimes. In fact, it's not the words, the number of words that uh, gets God's attention. What gets his attention is when he finds a group of people that are willing to talk to him and to listen to him. In fact, if you go on and read in Matthew chapter 6, I didn't read it to you, but if you go into the section right after Jesus says, don't worry about the number of words, when you pray, pray like this, guess what he gives us? The Lord's Prayer. He lists for us the Lord's Prayer. Did you know that you can pray the Lord's Prayer, all of the words of the Lord's Prayer in less than three minutes? Jesus is saying, pray like this, and then he get, tells us how to pray, and he gives you a model prayer that will last three minutes. You know what takes the longest in prayer? Not the praying. The listening. That's what takes the longest. And so Jesus is wanting us to learn to listen. I was on the internet the other day and I was reading some information about how to get uh, become better in your shot when you're playing basketball. And there was this little guide on there and it said this. It said, when you're practicing shooting, you should set goals based on the number of shots, not the time. See, I don't think there's any magic formula for your prayer life time-wise. What I think is this, he, he went on and he said, you could literally practice for an entire hour and only take 100 shots. That's not enough. And you might be neglecting certain types of shots that are important. If you just go to the gym with the idea that you'll shoot for an hour, then you'll discover that you'll waste a lot of your time dribbling around. You just don't get in a good workout. 
And so with that advice in mind, I want to say this to you. There is not a magic formula about how much time you spend in prayer. The time is not the goal. Just because you spend an hour in prayer every day, that is not the goal. The goal of prayer is to make contact with God and to dialogue with Him. And so if you can go into God's presence and get in contact and dialogue with Him in 30 seconds, so be it. Quit beating yourself up and saying, well, i got to spend nine hours a day in prayer. But if you're only spending 30 seconds in prayer and you're not contacting God and you're having no dialogue with God, then you need to rethink how you're practicing and you need to spend more time. The goal is not time. The goal is contact and dialogue. The last thing I want to say to you about prayer is this. Jesus says this, when you pray. Let me read it like this. When you pray. Because, see, a lot of us, what we think is that when we come to church on Sunday and the pastor picks up the microphone, or when we come to a prayer meeting and the prayer leader leads in prayer, we take credit for that. Well, I agreed with him while he prayed, and I agreed with them while they prayed, and there is the element of agreeing, and I understand that, and there's power in agreement, but I want you to understand that just because I prayed this morning doesn't mean you prayed. I know you said amen when I prayed, but the reality is, is that Jesus says when you pray. In other words, he's saying we have to take individual responsibility for my prayer life. He didn't say, Steve, when your mama prays or when your daddy prays or your grandma prays or your auntie prays or your friends pray. I'm thankful for a praying mama and I'm thankful for a praying daddy and I'm thankful for a praying grandmama. But the reality is, is that I have to develop my own prayer life so that when I pray. And what I want to say to some of you this morning is this. There are people praying around you. There may be even people praying for you. But Jesus is saying there comes a moment when you've got to develop this element of the triple threat and you've got to come to the place where you pray. Mark us as a people who can pray. The third element of the triple threat, Jesus makes an assumption. And his assumption is, is that his followers will fast. Now, I understand that the word fast is the F word. I understand that. And I understand that when the pastor stands up and calls a fast, it's like he just said the F word. I understand that. It's the F word. We don't like fasting. It's, it's interesting to me. Woody and I were talking about this this past week when we did a fast a couple weeks ago. I can go all day long working on a project and never get hungry and never even realize I didn't eat. But as soon as we call it a fast, I starve to death. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I didn't eat all day yesterday. And if you say, well, I need you to fast tonight, I will be starving at 5 o'clock. Why? You know what that teaches us? That fasting has nothing to do with food. Fasting is a spiritual issue. And there is spiritual warfare. There's six times in Scripture that fasting is used, six different occasions. And I want to mention them quickly to you and draw some conclusions here. There were six times that people fasted in the Bible. The first one is this. Fasting occurred during a war. In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, Israel fasted at Bethel when they were getting ready to go to war against Benjamin. So during war, they fasted. Second, fasted, fasting occurred during sickness. You'll remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that David fasted because his son was sickened to death. And he 
wept and he fasted, asking God to heal his baby. You remember that? So when there was sickness, they fasted. The third time of fasting was during times or connected to times of repentance. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra reads the word of God and it causes the people to fall on their face and they call a fast and they repent. And in Joel, we read that he stood up and he did, the Bible says, call a solemn assembly, call the people to repent, repentance, get between the, orchard, the porch and the altar and pray and repent. But he also says, fast. Fasting is a part of repentance. Then fourth, fasting occurred during times of danger. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, Jehoshaphat stood up and, and called a fast when they were threatened by Edom. And let me just stop right here and say we know the story of Jehoshaphat. We like the story of Jehoshaphat because the story of Jehoshaphat says that Jehoshaphat got all the worshipers and put them out front. Remember that? And we like that, and we start talking about praise your way to victory, and there's power in your praise, and you can do damage with your praise, and you can. But we forget to back up to the first part of the chapter that says before they ever put the worshipers out front, they fasted. And we miss that truth. So, so when, when there's times of danger, we fast. Then fifth, we fast during times of revelation. There's an illustration in Daniel chapter 9 and an illustration in Exodus chapter 34 where Daniel on one occasion and Moses on another occasion, both of them fasted, one of them before and one of them after receiving God's revelation. I would say to you this morning, the reason that some of us never hear from God and never see anything from God is because we're not fasting. And fasting is connected to revelation. So what we are, we are restricted to is we have to figure things out with our carnal mind. Then we pray about it and say, God told me. No, no, no. If we would fast... We would get revelation. The sixth time that fasting was used is what Jesus talked about. It's for spiritual warfare because Jesus said that there are certain spiritual battles that are only won by prayer and by fasting. You remember he was face to face with a demon possessed boy and the father said I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus said some can only be brought out or called out by fasting and prayer and so it involves spiritual warfare let me say it to you like this and summarize like this if we don't fast we're not prepared to fight wars if we don't fast we can't handle sickness if we don't fast we don't we don't remain in an attitude of repentance if we don't fast we're unprepared for danger without fasting we don't hear or see as well so we miss revelation without fasting we no longer have power for spiritual warfare what the, what the Word is teaching us is that in every season of our life, it doesn't matter if it's good season, bad season, tough season, easy season, there is a moment at which we should be fasting. And we don't like to fast. Jesus said, when you fast, not if. Not if the pastor calls a fast. No, no. On a regular basis, when you fast. He knew we would need to fast because fasting causes us to have focus. Fasting reveals what controls us. If you don't believe that, try to do without your cell phone for a week. Shut down your computer for a week. Turn off Facebook for a week. Turn off the TV for a week. Turn off that relationship for a week. And see what actually controls. See, fasting is not just about food. Fasting reveals what controls us. Jesus fasted. You'll remember in the New Testament. That the Bible says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't expect you to do that. But I do expect you to fast because Jesus does. Jesus fasted for 40 days and a night. You know why? Jesus fasted before he ever faced his public. 
And my question is this morning is how many of us don't have the ability to face the public? We do real good during the game. When the lights are on on Sunday morning and we're all huddled together in here, we do really good. But as soon as we walk out out there, we no longer are able to walk out this game because we're not prepared to face the public. That only comes through the triple threat. And so my question this morning is, are we dangerous? I don't know if you remember this or not. Let me say this. To be a disciple requires what? Discipline. It's part of the word. You can't get rid of it. If we're not disciplined, we're not disciples. Period. I don't know if you remember this, but a few months ago uh, in a service, John Chasteen uh, received a word from the Lord and he gave it to us. And I I read it then, but I want to read it again because I think we need to be reminded of what God is calling us to as a body. He says, this was the word, I am calling you to join with me in the carving process. I call you this year to renew in your spiritual disciplines, practice. We're talking about practice, man practice we're not talking about the game we're talking about practice and he says renew in your spiritual discipline so that your passion can be known to all and that you can follow me in the process your commitment to the spiritual disciplines the practices of the faith will not gain you points with me but rather they will place you in a position to assist me as I carve out the niche for you so I call you to a year of learning a year of rediscovery and practicing spiritual disciplines not out of legalism but out of a love and devotion for me practice and so as a body this morning we have a decision to make here's the decision that we must come to here's the answer here's the question we must answer will we or will we not be a threat to the enemy how many of you know there are churches meeting in Oklahoma City this morning that are no threat now there are churches around that are extreme threats you know listen when you're playing basketball A good coach will examine the other team that they're getting ready to play, and they'll find the mismatch on the floor. For instance, if John Chastain, who's six foot seven, is guarding me, or I'm trying to guard him, there is a mismatch there. And they will feed him the ball as old as he is and decrepit as he is, he would still score 60 points on me because I'm only 5'8. And there's a huge mismatch, right? If we don't take care of the triple threat, We're the mismatch. If we don't take care of the triple threat, we're the easy guard. They won't worry about us. Let me tell you what I want to happen. I want to see us become so proficient in the fundamentals. I want us to see, I want to see us as a body become so generous and so marked by a spirit of prayer and so marked by a spirit of fasting that what happens is devil gets all of his demons together and says you know what we used to only have one demon assigned to that church and that body of believers but I think we probably ought to send reinforcements because they're dangerous and the only way that we get there is by taking care of the fundamentals I showed you the triple threat come here tell we're going to do a different triple threat that I hope will help you remember this get up here where people can see you all right I showed you the triple threat in basketball. Here's the triple threat that I'm calling you to as a church. The first one is this. The first element of the triple threat is that we will be marked by giving. No hesitation, just gives it up, right? The second element of the triple threat is that we will be marked by prayer. We're quick to pray, right? That's the second part. 
The third part is that we will be involved on a regular basis in fasting. That's the triple threat. If we can combine a heart of giving with a heart of prayer, with a body of fasting, can I tell you what we become? A superstar. The superstars do all three well. And they're dangerous. How many of you play basketball? Raise your hand and put it right back down. I know some of you are. All right. How many of you have ever played somebody that could do all three really good? First time I ever came up against somebody, it was in a pickup game, and they could do all three well. Guess what? As fast as I was and as much as I prided myself in defense, I was doomed. <laughs> they made me look sick. And then when it flipped and I had the ball and they were guarding me because I could only drive right and I can't use my left hand, I was destroyed. I didn't have a handle on the triple threat. I want to tell you something this morning. If we can get a grip on the triple threat, we will be unbelievably unstoppable. I want to pray over you, and then we're going to do this drawing. Father, hear my heart's cry this morning. Give me a congregation of people that are dangerously generous. God, I pray that you would begin to make them rich, not so that they can hoard it to themselves, but so that they can give on every occasion inside the church and outside the church. God, I pray that as they begin to drive up and down the roads and they begin to see people at work that are in need, there is a famine sweeping our land. And I pray that you would make us rich so that, in turn, when we see people in need, when, not if, when, we will instantly reach into our pocket. And be generous. Father, I pray that you'd mark us by prayer. I am so thankful for the prayer team that we have here, God. I'm so thankful for the prayer warriors that you have given us as a gift to this church. And they are that. They are a gift. And God, I don't take for granted the power that they bring with prayer. But Father, I am asking that now what you would do is you would allow each one of us to be marked by a spirit of prayer. That we would pray often, we would pray consistently and persistently, that we wouldn't just pray in public, but we would pray in private, and we would dialogue with you, and you would develop a prayer life in us that makes the devil shake in his boots. And Father, I pray that you'd mark us by fasting. As much as we dislike it, and as difficult as it is at times, I pray that you would help us to beat our bodies into subjection and into submission. And you would find in us a group of people who are more concerned about you controlling us than everything else that tries to control us. Mark us by the willingness to fast. Make us dangerous to the enemy of our soul. In Jesus' name. Touch your neighbor right now and say, you need to practice. Come on, tell somebody else, you need to practice. You need to practice. Well, it's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more passion resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion. 